Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Welcome to the third installment in our series on the doctrine of money. If you recall, last week we looked especially at the fact that money in and of itself is morally neutral, and yet because of the curse of sin, because men's hearts are wicked and corrupt from birth, men set money up as a desire, they become greedy towards it, and because of that they have committed all kinds of terrible atrocities against one another for many, many centuries. And it's not the fault of money that this has happened, nor will giving everybody all the money that they want fix the problem. You see, the problem with the corrupt attitude that man has towards money is that man, in his unregenerate state, is not satisfied with anything, whether it's money or power or any other created thing, because man can only be satisfied by God and by the regeneration of the heart that takes place through the work of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Let's go back to money, though. But we're going to go back to money by way of a somewhat philosophical discussion here about the creator-creature distinction. I don't know if you've heard of this concept before. It's something that we teach often on in our church because the creator-creature distinction establishes for believers and really for unbelievers, even if they don't accept it, it establishes for them a way of thinking and understanding the world that causes man's frail knowledge, man's limited knowledge to fall in line with that which is revealed in the Word of God that which comes from God, and that which is true and perfect and far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. So the creator-creature distinction basically says this, that God, as the creator, is different, and he exists outside of, and he exists independent from his creation. So God needs nothing in the creation for his maintenance or sustenance. In fact, if the entire creation were to disappear at this particular moment, it wouldn't change God, it wouldn't affect God in any way, shape, or form. That's theoretically speaking. Obviously, he's bound himself by certain promises that would then be broken. But theoretically, if all of creation disappeared, it wouldn't affect God in any way, shape, or form. And the creation, that which you see, the world that we live on, uh, the, the galaxy that we live in, the, the universe that we can observe with our eyes, that came out of nothing. We call that ex nihilo creation. God spoke matter into existence where previously there was no matter. And there is an important biblical principle that is derived from this fact that God 
spoke matter into existence, and because he spoke it into existence, he has ownership over all of it. In Romans chapter 9, Paul writes about the idea or this concept of the potter who is using a lump of clay to make certain vessels, and some of the vessels he makes for honorable uses, and some of the vessels he makes for dishonorable uses. Now, what's interesting about that is the clay, which is the vessel that's being made, or the material that's being made into vessels, let me state it that way, the clay never speaks back to the potter and says, you know, I I really want to be a vessel for honorable use. The clay never says anything to the potter. The clay just does exactly what the potter desires. And that's an important concept, an important philosophy to understand when it comes to money, because we have to realize that God owns everything. God is the owner of all of it. Yeah, well, there may be some zeros behind your name in your checking account. There may be some zeros behind the names of wealthy and famous and powerful people. But the fact is, God owns it all. Yahweh, the creator, made money. Now, he didn't make the U.S. dollar, but he gave governments the ability, he gave humankind the ability to think about how to establish worth how to practice trade, how to create monetary standards. And so God is ultimately the one who owns everything in the whole world. It all belongs to him. Now, 1 Chronicles 29.12 says that riches and honor come from God. That doesn't make any sense because it seems like I worked hard to get all these things. I, I, I spent a lot of time. I toiled. I strove. I sacrificed. Yeah, maybe you did. But God is ultimately the sovereign being behind your prosperity. He is the one who has allowed you to enjoy or to cultivate the riches that you have. Here's the entire verse, 1 Chronicles 29, 12. Both riches and honor come from you, speaking of Yahweh, God, the creator, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, I think this idea that God owns all the money can be difficult to reconcile with the fact that, you know, there's a lot of evil people who are very rich. There's a lot of wicked people who do terrible things and give money for terrible, immoral causes. And yet God is the one who made them rich. God is the one who allows them to be rich. Why is that? Why is that? We have to look to the doctrine of common grace for an answer. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, the rain, God causes the rain to fall on those who are righteous and those who are wicked. That's God's common grace, that he allows the rain to fall on the crops of the righteous and on the crops of the wicked. It's not as if God doesn't recognize 
that the wicked sometimes do act smartly or shrewdly, especially in relationship to one another. And they are good at using their creative powers to think of ways to benefit themselves, even when they're in difficult situations. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus commends and points out the smart and shrewd actions of a steward, a manager, who got himself into some trouble with his boss, but made some smart business deals to curry favor with those who owed his boss money, so that when his boss fired him, he might have some place to go. God understands that the wicked use money for immoral purposes. God in his sovereignty has allowed immoral people, wicked and corrupt people, to practice their immorality, to practice their wickedness during their time on earth, and then someday they will face the judgment. And so it's not right for us to think that God is unfair or unjust or somehow he's not in control when the wicked have money and they use it for purposes that are against the moral standards that God has set forth. Let me be clear. When God allows wicked people to gain money, to cultivate wealth and power and influence, he's not endorsing their wickedness. He's not endorsing their actions. But what he is doing is demonstrating that their actions, their lifestyle, is allowable under the current system that he has established for all of us to live under. You know, you and I are underneath that system as believers, and the wicked are underneath that system. And the Bible is very clear that, you know, we don't get saved by our good works. But if you're a believer, your good works will result in a future reward. But if you're an unbeliever, no amount of good works you do will result in a future reward. You will face judgment. And if your good works will be judged, how much more will your evil works be judged? So the bottom line is that God owns all the money. And God can do with it what he wants because he's the creator. Why are we questioning him and the rules and the systems that he has established? 1 Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord, Yahweh, makes some people poor and makes others rich. He brings some low and he exalts others. Who are we to question God? God has purposes. God has plans. God has designs for this world that he has created that are beyond our ability to comprehend and fathom. Look, that's why we call it believing by faith. Now, it's not a blind faith because we have the word of God that informs our faith. We have rock-solid promises on which to base our faith, but it is faith. It's hope in something that we cannot see. The Lord is just in all that he does. 
and the Lord is holy in his character and nature. And so because he is holy, his justice is perfect and should not be questioned. I think that reality, that the Lord makes some rich and the Lord brings some to be poor, that ought to really weigh on us as we contemplate how to use money. Because we can strive and strive and strive and strive under our own power and never get ahead. And we could never realize or achieve the results that we are hoping for. And then when that happens, you have to stop and ask yourself, why, why, is, I, why is that happening to me? Why am I not achieving what I desire? Well, the answer is simple. There's a greater force at work. Not just a greater force, as if fate is against you. No, there is a person, a loving father, who perhaps is trying to teach you a lesson by not allowing you to acquire and get what you want. I think that this brings us to another important point. The first being that God, as the owner of all money, is able to bestow it upon whomever he wants. But the second important point in understanding our relationship to money is that your personal attitude towards money will set the course for your life. Think about that. Your personal attitude towards money will set the course for your life. Now you listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Your attitude towards money can absolutely set the course for your life. Paul says two things here. There is a love of money that is a root of all sorts of evil. Not always the same type of evil, but all different kinds of evil if you love money. Paul also says this, if you desire to get rich, if that's your heart's desire, if that's your primary motivation in life, if you want to get rich, often you will fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. I love the contrast in that verse. Those who want to get rich, you want all. You want to have everything. You want the world at your fingertips. And that's your desire. That's your goal. Paul says, you know what? When you want that, oftentimes you'll fall into temptation and a snare and many harmful and foolish desires, which will do what? Result in ruin and destruction. You want to get rich? You want to manipulate life? You want to spend all your efforts and energy towards acquiring wealth? Well, guess what's going to accompany that? Many foolish and harmful desires, which will most likely end up in your ruin and in your destruction. There are a lot of people who have come to ruin and destruction 
through seeking to get rich, and they live bitter and discontented lives because they want something that they're not able to achieve. And you know, this warning is not written to unbelievers, right? This warning that Paul writes to Timothy is for the church. It's for the church, it's for believers. And why is it so important that Paul writes this to believers? Well, as we talked about last week, your attitude towards money, your relationship to it will determine whether you serve money or whether you serve Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 10. Some who have longed for money have walked away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I've been a pastor for a lot of years now, and I have seen people personally walk away from the faith because they wanted money and the comforts that money brings and the quote-unquote peace that money brings. They want the toys that money brings, and it has caused a lot of ruin and heartache in people, as I've observed over the years. You know what Paul says instead to Timothy in verse 11? Flee from these things. Flee. Run away. You don't need money. You don't need money. What you really need to do, you man of God, is pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That's what you really need to pursue. Don't set your heart on the things of this earth. Don't set your heart on treasures that will ultimately be destroyed, treasures that you can't take with you someday. Set your heart on treasures that are above. Set your heart on knowing Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yeah, I love what Paul says in 1 Timothy verse 6, verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now try preaching that in a lot of American churches. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Contentment is a lost art. It is a lost concept. It is a lost virtue in 21st century America, and really in Europe and in most parts of the world, contentment is a lost virtue. But Paul says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Before that, he says this, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it. Does that mean you can't enjoy life? Does that mean you can't appreciate the blessings that God has given you? Does that mean you can't ever buy anything beyond food and covering? No, no, of course not. You can. You're able to, according to the means that you have. But the difference is when you set your heart on pursuing riches and pursuing money, you're clearly not setting your heart on pursuing godliness. Those two things are antithetical. They cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. You can't do one and do the other. You're either doing one or you're doing the other. Paul was a great example of this particular 
reality. Because he, probably more than any of the apostles, experienced great riches and how to live in great riches, and he experienced great poverty and how to live in great poverty. And I think that you all are familiar with the passage I'm about to go to, which is in Philippians chapter 4. You look at Philippians chapter 4. Paul's writing in his letter to the Philippians, and he's about to thank them for the gift that they sent on his account. And he says, you know what? I I don't really need the gift because I'm content with where I am. But you know who receives the blessing when a gift is given? The giver. The giver is the one who receives a blessing when a gift is given. Paul writes this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, Philippians 4.10, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. You see, where was Paul when he was writing this? In prison. He's saying, I'm not even speaking from want. I didn't ask for this gift because I wanted it. He's saying, I appreciate the gift because of your generous heart. Well, how did you not want something, Paul? You were in prison. He says this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. See, Paul's attitude towards money set the course for his life. Because he learned the secret of contentment, because he learned to be thankful and to have an attitude of uh, thankfulness no matter what the circumstances he was in, he was not encumbered by the pursuit of riches. He was not encumbered by always having to get more and more and more. And what did that enable him to do? Think about it. It enabled him to be perhaps the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen. Certainly one of the most prolific. And that's not just because he was the Apostle Paul. We could quote uh, many recent historical examples of missionaries who put God's interests far above their own. J. Hudson Taylor comes to mind as one. James Gribble, another. Jim Elliott. And there are countless men and and women who went with them, right? Wives who thought the kingdom of God was worth far more than any profit they could acquire while living in some of the greatest and most prosperous nations in the world. Paul's attitude towards money, that he would be content in any circumstance, set the course of his life because his attitude freed him to do missions. His attitude allowed him to have a single-minded focus. That was being devoted to God and serving God instead of being devoted to wealth and serving wealth. These are hard principles for the contemporary church. And they are hard principles for the contemporary church because 
so much of the contemporary church's teachings about money and the gospel has been connected, wrongly connected. Like, for example, Jesus wants you to prosper. Jesus wants you to be happy. Jesus wants your greatest good. And so if you come to Jesus, you will have your greatest good met. And how do we define good in America? We define good according to what culture says is a golden standard for living. We define good according to what culture says is a acceptable standard for clothing to wear, cars to drive, houses to live in, jobs to work at. We define good according to a cultural standard, not according to a biblical standard. Jesus addressed this very issue in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, excuse me, not Luke, Matthew chapter 6, towards the end of the chapter, when he says, you know what? Why do you seek after all the things that the Gentiles seek? You know, the Gentiles, and in this context, Gentiles are referring to unbelievers, all right? He had a Jewish audience, and when Jews talked about Gentiles, they were talking about unbelievers. So Jesus was using uh, language and words that his audience would have understood. Jesus says, look, the Gentiles are eagerly seeking after all of these things. The Gentiles want money. The Gentiles want clothes. The Gentiles want nice houses to live in. Your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. He's not ignorant. He knows. So trust him. Don't spend your time seeking after all the things that the Gentiles seek. Spend your time seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? That means I'm going to consider the call to make disciples to be a greater call than to make dollars. Go, therefore, making disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, you have to go somewhere, meet people. Then you have to baptize them. After they hear and receive the gospel, then you have to spend your entire life teaching them for their entire life all that Jesus taught us. Are we interested in making disciples or are we interested in making dollars? Now, obviously, this doesn't excuse us from working. It doesn't mean that we can just sit around uh, and do nothing and expect God to provide for us. That's a wrong perspective. I think what it does mean, though, is that you prioritize outside of your job that you have, outside of the hours that you need to work to provide for your family, you prioritize doing God's work above doing work that profits you. What does that look like? Well, let's just say that you need to work a 40 hour a week to a 40 hours a week to provide for your family. Comfortable. All right. Let's not say that you're just barely scraping by, but let's say 40 hours a week at your job will allow you to have, you know, some discretionary spending to be able to put money in savings, et cetera, et cetera. But you think to yourself, man, if I just worked 45 hours a week, or if I just worked 50 hours a week, 
you know, I could do so much more. I could get that second house. I could afford that other mortgage. I could afford maybe a motorcycle or a boat or something else that I really want to enhance my life. Is it worth it? Let's say you do work the extra 10 hours a week, but you don't spend any time in service to Jesus Christ. You show up to church on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, you don't do anything for the Lord because you're working that extra 10 hours. You're too tired. You have other family responsibilities. You've got to be a dad. You've got to be a husband. You've got to, you know, or, or you're a working mom or, you know, you're a mom with small children and you stay at home. You have a lot of things that you have to do, but you're compromising you're compromising service to God in order to get material, temporary possessions. What's going to result in real happiness and real satisfaction? All those extra toys or a deep relationship with Jesus Christ? Deep friendship and fellowship with other believers who are like-minded? What's going to count for all of eternity? And I think answering that question is the most critical when it comes to determining what your attitude is towards money and how it will set the course of your life. Lord, what course do I want my life to go down? Lord, what do I want for eternity? What should I think? about money and how can I change? Not just how can I change my thinking, but how can I change my practice? How can I adjust my life so that I have my priorities correct? I hope that you can see through these verses that we looked at, through the discussion points that we brought about, that your personal attitude towards money will shape a great many decisions that you make about every area of your life. You know, what house you're going to live in, what car you're going to drive, what clothes to buy, what groceries to buy. All kinds of things are shaped by our attitude towards money. And if our attitude towards money doesn't conform to the biblical standard, if it doesn't conform to what Jesus expects of his followers, we have a real problem because we're not walking according to the truth. So next week, that's where we're going to start. What should I think about money? How should I think about money? And how can I change not just my attitudes, but my practice? Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate all the support I've gotten from the listeners and the feedback. Hey, if you're listening on Apple, iTunes, please uh, give me five stars and leave a review. That will really help this podcast uh, be distributed to more people. It'll show up in more people's search engines. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, uh, please email them to gracebrethrenchapel at gmail.com. Once again, you can check our church out on the web at www.gbchapel.org. 
May God bless you as you put the truth into practice.